0: Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Today's scripture reading is Mark 9,
1: 14 through 29. how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. it has, And it has often cast him into fire and onto water and to, and to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you... Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and and he arose and when he had entered the house his disciples asked him privately why could we not cast it out and he said to them this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer.
0: Thank you guys so much appreciate you welcome everyone glad you are here today and uh, very much so looking forward to looking at uh, this passage with you sorry I can step away from that a little bit and uh, if you're new, really glad that you are here, and I pray that um, today would be a step for you in your spiritual journey, um, a place where you can ask questions freely, and um, maybe, maybe along that journey, a place where you can be known and be seen today. And so really glad that you uh, are here. Um, let's pray, and then we're going to like walk through this text today, and then we're going to really hone in on prayer um, so that we can be a praying community. All right, so let's pray. So Father, I love you so much and so grateful to come into this space, um, to contemplate your goodness, to be reminded of your grace, to be uh, guided by your truth. Um, I pray that we would be um, a people that are um, taking shape today, Um, our ethics, our mind, our heart, all of these things would be uh, shaped by your love and um, by the work of your son Jesus on the cross And so may you be in our midst today, and I pray, God, what we know not, would you teach us, what we have not, would you give us, and what we are not, would you make us. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. A 12th century monk, Bernard of Clairvaux, quipped, what we love, we shall grow to resemble. What we love, we shall grow to resemble. And I believe this is just true. If you've ever dated someone, slowly but surely... Your taste in music starts to drift, right? Like, you start to like what they like, all right? Or maybe you, uh, maybe you had that album together, right? I don't know if you're still together with them. Maybe it was like Casey Musgraves or Justin Timberlake, Death Cab. I'm aging myself a little bit here, like Usher, Beyonce. You had the album, right? What we love, we grow to resemble, right? Or uh, you ever notice... Uh, I'll, just, I'll just confess here a little bit. You ever notice how you dress similarly to your friends? Right, Like, in high school in particular, I had a friend, I thought that Trevor Van Tussenbroek was the coolest person I had ever met in my life. He was an amazing artist, he he wore the coolest shoes, and he could do a backflip. I was like, this guy's like the coolest person I've ever met, and slowly but surely, I started dressing like Trevor Van Tussenbroek. Unlucky for me, he wore the tightest women's jeans ever, and uh, at my mom's house, we didn't have a lot of money, And so I just started borrowing my mom's pants, and we wore the same size, and so it was all working out for me uh, really well, and it was 2004. So what we love, we grow to resemble, and this is exactly why we're spending so much time in Mark's gospel. This is why we're going so slow through Mark's gospel because we're attempting to shape our loves around the person and the work of Jesus like primary source going back to the root we know the church is in chaos we know the world is a mess all of these things how can we go back tether ourselves to the person of Jesus so that we can shape our loves and our desires around him so that Jesus would be the thing that we love most and as a, as we've been doing that Um, this is not intended, um, we're not going slowly through, like, each of these passages so that um, we can just, like, deposit little ideas in your head or, like, little, like, bits of wisdom into your brain, but actually what we're doing is we're rolling around in it so that we can reflect, evaluate, so that we can actually begin to resemble Jesus, right? Like, what do we always say? Reunion is a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city, and if we're going to do that in a genuine way. What we should actually begin to see as our community grows is that our city is better off because our church exists. And so what I mean by that is, as we watch Jesus serve those on the margins, what, what's going to happen to us? We're going to be motivated to serve in a genuine way, right? We're going to be motivated to be better or different neighbors in how we live in our neighborhoods, and we're going to do it in such a way where we say, "You know what? Jesus didn't need recognition when he served, so I don't need recognition when I serve. I can just do it humbly and simply to love my neighbor." Or what about, like, hospitality? We've seen Jesus, particularly early in the chapters um, in, in, in the book of Mark, where Jesus is, like, eating with everyone. And all of a sudden, we begin to ask and evaluate, who's welcome at my table? Or as we see um, Jesus speak the truth to the religious elite of the day, speaking truth to power, what we begin to do is we say, how do I begin to speak truth to power? How do I begin to have grace in conflict with my family or at work? Or as we watch Jesus sacrifice, what we begin to do is we begin to evaluate our relationship with our money and our time. We're feeling looser and more generous with it because our mindset is to give and not just to take. And so this is why we've been spending so much time doing this, because what we love we shall grow to resemble. And so here in our passage today, Jesus and his three closest followers, Peter, James, and John, are uh, coming off a literal mountaintop experience. Katie talked about this last week. And throughout these chapters, chapters Mark through se- uh, 7 through 10, um, the disciples are having high highs and low lows. Like, why can they not get it? And what you and I actually find is that we're in really good company when we see the disciples falling short. And so uh, if you want to take out, uh, maybe like uh, if you have a Bible or if you want to pull it up on your phone, I'm going to be walking through um, part of this text. And um, I learned this phrase this week. When a movie has a lot of characters, particularly main characters, it's called an ensemble cast. And that's what happens in our passage today. We get an ensemble cast. It gets a little bit chaotic. And so uh, if you want to pull that up, um, we'll follow along there. So they come off the mountain. Um, Peter, James, and John, Jesus had 12 disciples. The best question is, is, where are the other nine? Like, what have the other nine been doing here? And what we find is that the other nine are in an argument with the scribes, the religious leaders of the day. And these religious leaders always seem to be creeping on Jesus, waiting for him, like hiding out, stalking him, waiting for him to make a mistake, and then putting into question what Jesus is saying and doing. And so I sort of imagine the scene, like, very chaotically. Uh, there's a big crowd. The nine disciples and the scribes are in the middle arguing. It's sort of like um, when you go to Central Park and there's like a performance going on. You walk up, you're watching the performance, and then the main event comes on. What happens? The crowd begins to grow. Jesus shows up, and we see that the crowd is growing even larger. And so Jesus kind of pulls, I don't know what it maybe looked like, but he pulls his nine disciples aside, and in the text, he asks them this question, what are you arguing about with them, them being the scribes? And out of the swarm of the crowd, you begin to hear the shouts of a desperate dad. Teacher, I brought to you my son. And what you get here is an air of desperation. And I know that you and I, we're smart, we know how to read the Bible, but we're so prone to reading with our heads. Like we read the passage, we hear it, and we just sort of like move on. But I want you you to pause. Don't just read this with your head. Hear this with your heart for a second. Verse 17, hear this with your heart. A desperate father... Teacher, I brought to you my son, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. That that word able in the Greek is actually power. And he's saying they had not power, meaning what? They were powerless. There was something spiritual that they didn't have power over. I don't know about you, but i felt like that before. Where you're like, I, I, don't, I just don't, I don't know. There's, there's a barrier there. Like, I can't overcome that idea or that thought, right? And what we find with this boy, taking into account the entire passage, you can kind of flip through it there, um, the boy has been demon-possessed since childhood, and the condition is dark. It's left him mute, so he's unable to speak. He's deaf, foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth, and taking control of him, whenever he gets near uh, water or fire, he, he, he's like propelled into it. And really what's described here is someone that's trapped inside of their own body, right? Like experiencing life, but trapped in their own body. And so this young man's life is absolutely paralyzed. Nothing darker in my mind than the inability to even share your own experience, right? Like the darkness, the loneliness, how isolating. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And there's a lot we could say here, but I I do want to do a little side note here. There are tons of confusing ideas and portrayals of possessions and demonic possessions, um, you know, from a cultural standpoint, movies and things like that. And then, you know, various ways to navigate reading um, a first century document and then our realities in 2020. Too. And so, there are largely two views of demonic possession. And the first is, it's everywhere. Watch out, right? Like, look in your latte. There's like a sign in there. Like, watch out. You're going to be possessed, right? And we can tend to over-spiritualize specific thing. But in reaction to that is the full pendulum swing is, it's nowhere, right? We have nothing to worry about because there's no such thing as spirits or possessions or anything like that. But actually, Scripture portrays um, more than physical realities. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, uh, it should be on the screen here, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so scripture says there's there's more than that. Like I said, there's a lot we could say here, but the important thing to note here is that possession and unclean spirit in this way is always intended to do two things. Number one, It always is intended to call into question our identity as children of God. And so in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is, uh, he's being tempted. Uh, The the phrase is that the tempter is tempting him. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, it says, If you are the son of God, tell these stones to be turned into bread. If you are the son of God. He's questioning his identity as the son of the father, right? Does God really love you? Will God really care for you? are you secure, right? Will he provide for you? And the second thing is that um, possession in this way is intended to distort and to destroy the image of God, right? That's why what's happening in the passage is uh, the um, spiritual realities are becoming physical, right? Thrown into water, fire. There's an intention to distort and destroy. John 10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so the son is experiencing all of this darkness. Every day he deals with the circumstances, and this has been happening ever since he was a child. Verse 18 ends with this, so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, and I'm assuming he looks at the disciples here, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. I think Jesus is worn down, right? Jesus is like, we've been at this for so long. I told you what's happening. I told you what I'm longing for in your life. And then you just notice this wisdom. He turns to his disciples and says, bring him to me. He's saying, I'm I'm actually going to do something about this now, right? And the desperate father asks, and Jesus responds. Verse 21, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus, could you do for for my son what you've done for others? I've heard about you. I've heard about your preaching. I've heard about your miracle working. Could you do for my son what your disciples couldn't? If you can do anything for me, have pity on us, a father in a desperate situation. Like I said, it's easy to read the passage and say, oh, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a good story. Jesus you know, does some really cool things, and you miss the heart of it. I was really moved in, um, in June. I was watching um, an interview with Anderson Cooper. It was um, him interviewing a father whose daughter was murdered at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. Um, the video is four minutes long. Um, you watch it if you want, but um, the father's name is um, Angel Garza. He's a medic on the day of the school shooting, and he showed up um, there, and he was both, you know, a medic, but he was also looking for his daughter, interacted with a little girl, and said, my best friend, um, in the video, he shares a story, basically, she says, my, my best friend was shot and, and died, and it ended up being his daughter, and in the interview, it's just like so gut-wrenching, but in the, the interview, um, Angel is grasping a picture of his daughter. It's a, a big white frame, and he's holding it, and he's grasping it like he's actually hugging her. He's got these big sunglasses on. He's crying. And he says, how do you look at this girl and shoot her? How do you shoot my baby? And you're just like, oh, my gosh. Like, how, how do you even, like, how do you hear this agony, like, of a person losing their child? Like, just, just heartbreaking. Um, my daughter is, um, is going to start school in about a month, and when I, was, when I was prepping this week, I kept thinking about, like, the, my own fear and, like, what, what does that look like to have a kid in 2022 and send them to school and to leave them there? And um, my heart doesn't even want to approach this level of desperation and heartbreak. And so this morning, I'm, <laughs> I'm finishing up my sermons like 6.30 in the morning. My daughter wakes up. She's like, hi, Daddy. And I just, like, I look at her. I'm like, I'm okay. I'm, like, right here. Like, I'm okay. And she's like, Why is your face like that? And I'm like, I just love you, buddy. I just love you. Like, that's how we have to see this passage, right? a, A father desperate for his son to be well. A father fearing for his child, right? And then what do we find in the text? There's hope in the person of Jesus, right? And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I just, I just love this, right? Like we try to dichotomize these two things, like belief, unbelief. And I love this text because this is the spiritual life, right? Monday morning, it's gonna be a great week. I'm gonna crush this. Like I'm gonna do great. Monday lunch, discouraging email, discouragement, fear, resentment. Oh Jesus, help my unbelief, right? You're like, it's been five hours, right? Like, this is where I'm at. This is the spiritual life. I believe. I'm trying. I'm taking steps. Help my unbelief, right? We're in such good company when we read this, and the truth is, is that Jesus, I, I, I know we like to skirt around this, and like, we're like, we're going to be strong, and we're going to like, we're going to do it better than the disciples. Here's the reality. Jesus responds to desperate faith. Like, Jesus loves desperate faith, When we are just at our wits end and we're like, I have nothing else, it's like Jesus is like, yeah, come on, come out of him, never enter him again. And what Jesus does in this story is he's giving us a glimpse of the future, the things that we so long for, right? Redemption, restoration, renewal, uh, the renewal of all things. Jesus, what he does is he takes a life and he makes it whole and he gives us a picture of what he longs to do in the here and now and that which he will do in the future, takes the boy by the hand, stand up. The distorted and destroyed image of God is made whole. And some of you know this, like some of you are sitting in here and you just like have a little bit of smirk on your face because you say, hey, I I know that I'm not crushing it right now. I know that I don't have it all figured out, but I know that Jesus has done that for me and I'm good. And so the life that your soul longs for is found in the person of Jesus. The life your soul longs for is found in the person of Jesus. And the passage for us today, it could be a glimpse of hope. Maybe you resonate with the idea of like, I believe, help my unbelief. There there are latches. But the crazy thing to me about this story is it's not over. We get a glimpse of the life we long for, but there's more verses in the passage. And what you get is a sort of epilogue here. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Jesus sent them, right? He sent them two by two to do the work of ministry in chapter 6. Why, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Some translations add the word fasting. It's very simple, though. Here's what Jesus is saying. You couldn't cast the demon out because you never prayed. The Father brought the Son to Jesus, but the disciples never brought the Son to Jesus in prayer. So the father, he's humble and he's desperate. He's confessing, I don't have what it takes. I have fickle faith at best. That's what I have. And the disciples said, well, Jesus already sent us out to do this. We know exactly what we're supposed to do. We got this. We're so sure of ourselves. We know exactly what we should do. And what is the difference between the two? Bringing that to Jesus in prayer. And so this is what I want to talk about just for the rest of our time here. This idea of praying desperately. I want to talk about intercessory prayer for a minute, and then I want to talk about prayer as the work for reunion. Prayer as the work for a reunion. And the first thing I want to say when this idea of praying desperately is this, is that prayerlessness is actually unbelief. Prayerlessness is actually unbelief. Think of the logic here. All things are possible for one who believes. That's what the scripture says in this passage. Then it says they couldn't cast out the unclean spirit, and then lastly, this type can only be driven out through prayer. Logic tells me Prayerlessness is unbelief. When do you and I not pray? When we forget, right? When we don't want to? When we don't think we need to? When we think that we can handle the situation on our own? And prayer, a classic definition of prayer is that um, praying is lifting heart and mind to God, right? Like that's like the classic definition. And I think it's, it's a worthy definition, but I think we should be thinking broader about prayer. And in, in that, prayer is union and connection and intimacy and relationship with Jesus. It's, it's when our lives are, are in sync with Jesus and we're actually just like, this is like my whole self, my whole heart. This is what I long to see you do. And so prayer really is all the ways in which we commune and communicate with God. And the thing that we learn in the passage is that we should pray desperately, we should pray desperately, right? I believe, help my unab- uh, unbelief. Or I even love in the, in the beginning um, how crowds are swarming and a desperate father unabashedly shouts out, teacher, I brought to you my son. See, this is what desperation does in our life. Desperation breeds authenticity and authenticity drives out skepticism, right? So desperation breeds, uh, breeds authenticity and authenticity in our life drives out skepticism, And what does that lead to? It leads to belief. It leads to having faith. Jesus is teaching us how to have faith, and the the pathway to faith is to connect with God in prayer. Um, In the early parts of 2019, uh, my daughter was born. Um, My wife and I were living on the Upper West Side. Uh, We were dreaming about um, starting this church. thinking about um, how do we even begin to do that? How do we start gathering people? How do we align our theology? How do we get all of these things um, done? And right before she was born, I was actually working two jobs. I was working at Blue Bottle Coffee, and then I was working at a church uh, up in Harlem. And um, it was a season for me of heavy anxiety. Just a lot of things to figure out, a lot of imposter syndrome. Like, I know what we're doing. (laughs) I had no idea what we were doing. And then on top of all that, America is the absolute worst on maternity and paternity leave. And so uh, my wife, Katie, I think she had like six or eight weeks off. So I was working my two jobs, baby at night. And then um, then we flip-flopped. I actually had um, six to eight weeks off, and then she um, went back to work. And when my time for paternity leave came, my daughter Rose and I, we would do the same thing every day. Um, I had worked at that coffee shop, so we would go to that coffee shop every day to drink free coffee. And uh, we would sit there. Um, She was a baby, and so I just stare at her, talk to people, um, hang out. Uh, If you really want to get to know your neighbors, like get a dog or get a baby, and everyone will talk to you. You're not a creep anymore. Um, And I had a notebook, and like you know, I would I would write down things that I noticed. um, Sort of felt like in that season, I was like a cultural anthropologist. How do I understand the culture? How do I understand what's happening? What's going to resonate for us as as a church? And Um, in that time, I actually had a lot of questions, right? I was tired, I was restless, I was working a ton, and then it was just like, you're with a baby now. And I was like, I want to go back to work, that's easier than this, right? And the thoughts in my head were, what if this doesn't work? What if I'm not good enough? What if people find out I'm an imposter? What if I can't provide for my wife or my child? And in reality, um, the answer was, um, you're going to fail at a lot of those things, right? It's going to be really tough in that way, but I didn't know it then. And so what I would do every day after I went to Blue Bottle, because literally um, when I was working at Blue Bottle, like you'd stand all day. And so I, my, my anxiety was like manifesting in my legs. I was like, I, was, I would come home and just crash. I was so tired. And so on my way home um, in the mornings when I was on paternity leave, I would go to this beautiful Catholic church on 71st Street and Broadway. And just about every other day, I would go there. Um, I would take my daughter. And at the time, we had a walk-up apartment. And so if she fell asleep in the stroller, I was like, the option is to go home and wake her up or to just sit in here. And so I would just walk by and I would just um, sit in here and um, I ran out of things to pray. I, I didn't know what to pray anymore. I was like, God, I feel like I've, I've said all that I could say. And so like, it's pretty deep, but I Googled like different forms of prayer and <laughs> that's your pastor, all right? And so I literally Googled like different forms of prayer and came across um, breathing prayer. And so I just go and sit in the back of this church, and I'll just breathe, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it was a way of deepening my own reliance on God to just sit in the back of this church, and it was so freeing to say, I, I'm like the disciples here, like, I don't, I don't got it. I don't have a great idea. I, I don't have it all figured out. I don't know great strategies, right? Like, I don't know that internet algorithm to get people in a room to start worshiping. Like, I don't got it. But what I do have is I can pray and I can simply be present and be with God. And here's the thing. I know this sounds like you're like, I actually want that, right? Like, tell me the breathing prayer. Give me that, right? But I want to acknowledge a difficulty in prayer. Prayer means trust. Prayer means intimacy with God, and intimacy, like it or not, leads us to a place where we are not in control. When we fall in love with someone, what are we doing? We're giving ourselves to another person, and we're giving them the ability to do us great good and the possibility of great harm. That's what happens when we give our heart and we give our life to, to another person in friendship or in marriage, whatever it may be, and I believe it's really similar with God. And I think this is what often drives some of us to a, a form of prayerlessness. Like, like I'm sometimes afraid that if, 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 um, that if I pray, like, what if God doesn't hear it because I'm not, I'm not, I haven't figured this out yet. Or like, what, what if my prayers are selfish? Like, what if what, if what I'm praying is actually just trying to, to manipulate God to do my thing, right? Like, so should I even pray? Or what happens if I pray? And something doesn't happen that I pray for. Look, like, what if I say, God, would you protect my wife? Would you protect my child? And then something tragic happens to them, right? And prayer means handing these questions over to God and saying, God, I actually, in intimacy, trust that you are a God that can handle these things. I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, God's response to our prayer is not a charade. He doesn't pretend that he's answering our prayers when he's only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a spectator that haunts the minds of many who profess sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. Of course, this is not the biblical idea of prayer, nor is it the idea of people for whom prayer is a vital part of life. God really does hear our prayers and our requests really do do make a difference in what God does. And so, let us pray desperately. Second thing, I want to acknowledge um, something vital in this text about prayer. How was the boy made whole? Jesus is growing in frustration. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? What does he say? Bring him to me. Bring him to me. The word bring there in the Greek is pharaoh. It it just means um, to bear or to carry prayer isn't just about um, ourselves and, you know, lessening our own anxiety, being present with God, but it's actually an opportunity to bring other people to God in prayer, what's called intercessory prayer. Uh, The English word intercession uh, intercession is actually derived from the Latin. It means to come between or to obstruct or to interpose on behalf of someone. I sort of imagine, um, say you're on a hike, and there's a stream running through your trail, and It just helps to have someone stand in the gap, right? To go get sure footing along the stream and to help other people across along the way. That's intercessory prayer. It's going to God on behalf of others. One theologian said it this way, intercessory prayer is spiritual defiance of what is in the way of what God has promised. Intercession visualizes an alternative future to the one apparently faded by the momentum of current forces. I know this is complex, but here, this is so good. Prayer infuses the air of a time yet to be into the suffocating atmosphere of the present. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. Even a small number of people firmly committed to this new inevitability on which they have fixed their imaginations can decisively affect the shape the future takes. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. Are you praying for other people? Are you praying for your sick friend, for their marriage, for your parents, for your friends and their job and whatever they may be going through? Um, I had it in here, but I took it out. It's a little bit long. If you want an example of that, John chapter 17, a beautiful prayer from Jesus praying for us actually praying for us, and you just get this like whole chapter of Jesus praying, what he longs to see um, in your life. Are you praying on behalf or for others? And what's the last part? Praying is the work. We couldn't cast out the Spirit. Why, Jesus, could we not cast out the Spirit? Why, why didn't it work? You didn't pray. You thought you were doing the work, but prayer was actually the work. And it's interesting, if you think about it this way, they tried to do good, right? They had good intentions. They wanted to see this boy um, free of this spirit, but they tried to do it detached from the one that could make him whole. And that's really what this passage is ultimately about, is that prayer was the work, connection, intimacy, and depth with God. That's what the soul longs for. When I moved to New York, uh, I had an interesting phone call um, with a pastor. We were trying to explore partnerships and trying to figure out what it looked like to really get this church going and, and started talking to people. And I, um, this pastor was really gracious um, with his time with me, and I, I um, really was really grateful. And about halfway through the phone call, he said, so one of the things about New York is New York is um, expensive. A lot of people come here and fail, uh, waste a lot of money, and church fall apart and hurt a lot of people. I go, like, oh, thanks, you know, so I'm glad to be here, um, and he said, it got a little strange, but he said, um, so what are your hacks, and I was like, hacks, like, what do you mean, and it's was like, live in such a culture of like, your hacks, right, like, do you got a rent controlled apartment, like, do you have a second job, and I was like, uh, I don't, I don't, my, my hacks, I was like, um, my wife, you know, lived in the city for a number of years, and like, her grandma lives around the corner, she could babysit for us, like, I don't, is, is, like is that what you mean, he's like, yeah, that's like a decent start. And he said, um, "I was like, "What's your hack?" And he goes, uh, "My wife is independently wealthy, and we own our apartment." And I was like, "Oh, I was like, "My wife needs a better job then, I guess. I don't know. She's a teacher." And I was thinking about that conversation this week, and there's probably some, some wisdom in there and um, probably some things to think about, and I really do appreciate that pastor. But we're always looking for hacks, but um, to plant a church, to go to work on Monday morning to do whatever, you, whatever it is that you want to do, pr- prayer is the hack. Like, prayer's the hack. Tapping into something deeper, right? That's, that's not um, utilitarian. Like, I'm so utilitarian, I'm, everything has a function. Like, I got to pray so I can get the outcome, when in reality, Jesus is like, how about you spend some time with me? How about you just be present with me? How about you just breathe in the back of a church and just be around me? And that will shape all of our desires. And so before I pray, let's, um, let's just practice this. Um, together in Luke chapter 11 the disciples come to Jesus and they say Lord teach us to pray like we actually have to learn how to pray and it's is really freeing um, but uh, one of the traditions in the church is, is the Lord's Prayer and so uh, let's say this together our Father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us today our daily bread forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now, forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage um, where we get a glimpse of what you so long for and what you so desire. That when we think we have things figured out, when we think we know exactly what to do, what we actually find is that we're deeply humbled and that we need to be drawn into closer communion with you. And so I pray for us as a community, God, would we be a people that long to be present with you, that we would be a community of prayer, that people would say, what is that church? How is it making a difference? How does it really care for its community? How, how do those people really exist in that way? How do these people love each other like that? And the truth is, is we could look and say, we have a hack, and our hack is prayer. Being connected in intimacy to the Father. And I pray that that would be um, who we are. For those of us this morning that need hope, I pray that this would remind us the, the healing Um, would remind us, the exorcism would remind us that uh, hope is possible, full restoration and renewal is that which we long for. And though we don't have it yet, we're reminded of the work and the length that you've gone to do that. And so, Father, as we come to take communion together today, may we be reminded of your sacrifice, and may this be a glimpse of of your kingdom come today, this wholeness and this restoration that's found in this passage May we be reminded of the work that you've done because you are God who will sacrifice your son because you love us so much. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.